Thank you for tuning in to Avant Life's weekly podcast. We hope this message inspires you, stirs your faith, and leaves you blessed. Good morning, everybody. Good morning online. Man, the MC this morning was beautiful. <laughs> Gross, too much PDA. Come on, this is church. Everyone good? Oh, it's great to be here. What a day to be in church, to worship together. Very excited for Alpha. I just want to say again, like if you've got someone that you can bring, do everything you can to bring them. It's going to be a great time. Have great conversations. Um, I said this a few times. If you're Christian, you're plugged in, you carry a Bible around, you're not allowed at Alpha unless you have a friend with you. Not for you. But if you've got a friend, bring them with you and uh, we'll have a great time together. Excited to dive into this series, Be Better. Sometimes preacher will do something like this. They'll say the title and then they'll say, turn to the person next to you and say, be better. (laughs) I find it cheesy, but I'm going to ask you to do it for a minute. (laughs) Just say, be better. (laughs) I'll get into the... In a few minutes, I'll, I'll explain a little bit of the, the thought behind the name. But have you ever had someone tell you that? Just be better. It's worse than when someone says do better, right? Because do better, it's like about my actions. But when someone says you need to be better, it's like, oh, that's about my soul that you're talking about right now. That's my personality or something like that. This is deep. So we're spending the next probably two months, eight weeks or so, moving through the book of James together. And the longer I've been a pastor, the more I find teaching series like this, where we slowly move through a book of the Bible, I find it more and more valuable for us as a community together. Because I I think we mentioned this last week, it was maybe a side thought, but it's true, is that the Bible specifically most of the New Testament, it it was not written to individual people for the most part. The New Testament letters and the Gospels were written to communities of people to encourage them in their following of Jesus, to help them sort out what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in this time, in this space, with these issues and those people. How do we follow Jesus together? Ecclesiastes tells us that there's nothing new under the sun. And I really think this is true because although the challenges and issues that we face as followers of Jesus in 2022 have unique names, the issues really aren't all that different. Believe it or not, this is not the first time in history Christians have had to navigate pandemics. This is not the first time in history there's been political division. This is not the first time in history we've been dealing with environmental crises and things like this. Fresh names, but it's the same issue. We're not all that unique. We sometimes like to think that we're special, but we're not. History tends to repeat itself. The issues remain largely the same. And so the thing these followers of Jesus faced and the challenges they were working through together are very much the same as what you and I are working through together now. And so as viewing the New Testament, and particularly the book of James over the next couple of months through this lens, is really helpful. 
And it's, it's a good practice for us as a community to say, hey, we're going to sit under this teaching. We're going to move through it slowly, and we're going to let it shape us as a community in the same way that this letter that James penned thousands of years ago shaped communities that heard it and read it and sat under its teaching. That's what we're going to do together. And so to that end, I want, as we kick off this series, I want to take a little bit of time this morning to give some context to the letter of James. If you're new to the Bible, if you're new to reading the Bible or studying the Bible, this is a really important practice to learn. There's, it's, it's hard to know how to do it just right away, but there's great tools that you can get to understand the context. The Bible is written to us, but not directly to us. The Bible cannot ever mean what it was never meant to mean to its original hearers. And so we understand what the Bible means and we apply it correctly to our life when we understand what it meant to those who first heard it. What was the context? What were they facing? What, how would they have heard this? How would they have understood the truth of this? It cannot mean, the Bible cannot mean to us now what it never meant to them then. So we're going to just explore some context for a little bit that will kind of give us the right framework as we move through these next two months together. And so I just want to ask some questions. Who's James? Who was he writing to? Why was he writing to them? What themes can we expect to see throughout this letter? And then we'll get into the first few verses of his letter. Let's start with James. Who is he? Where did he come from? There's actually a few ideas and maybe debates around exactly which James is the author of this letter. If you read the New Testament and the Gospels, you'll see there's a few people with the name James that come up that have different degrees of um, popularity or influence in the New Testament Gospels. But most of church history accepts and finds the best evidence is that this letter was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. And this in itself is an amazing thing. James, the half-brother of Jesus. If you remember back, and if you've read the Gospels before, you'll remember that James and the rest of his brothers started out as skeptics of Jesus, their brother. They were early adopters to this new Jesus being a Messiah thing. They were unsure of what their brother was doing. They weren't on board right away. They saw the things, but, and they, saw the, they heard the teaching, and they, they, they were around at all, but it, it didn't sit well with them at times. In fact, it kind of offended them every once in a while. James started as a skeptic. And we don't know exactly when James moved from being a skeptic to a believer. But as we read on in the story, we start to pick up this, his journey again in the book of Acts, and he's mentioned in Paul's letter to the Galatians. But look at how a once skeptic introduces himself in this letter. James chapter 1, verse 1, he says this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this. James, the skeptic. James, the critic. James, the what are you doing? Now, James, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has this unique perspective that he brings us into in his teaching. As we read on in, in history, we see that James becomes a key figure, becomes a pillar in the mother church in Jerusalem. And as other apostles are sent out of Jerusalem to plant churches or are driven out of the city because of persecution, James remains. And he pastors this congregation of people in the city. 
So that's James. Who's he writing to? Who's the audience? Immediately after James introduces himself, he identifies his primary audience. He says this, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. James is writing primarily to Jewish Christians who had become scattered throughout the known world. Remember at this time, Christianity was very new. And early on, it was almost fully made of Jewish converts. There were Jewish people that, that believed that Jesus was who he said he was, and they converted to Christianity. We read all about this in the first chapters of the book of Acts, the birth of the church and all that was happening. And it started in Jerusalem. But as persecution increased in the city, specifically after the disciple Stephen was martyred in Acts chapter 7, the Christians started to scatter as persecution increased. And they started to move out of the city. Now, this persecution actually had some benefits. Do you remember Jesus said to them, he says, I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go into all the world and make disciples. Now, to this point, the church had largely remained in Jerusalem. And so when persecution increased, they were then forced to take Jesus' command seriously and start moving, going. And so what the Christians did, this was largely a key moment in the growth of the early church. It was persecution because as they were running from the city, they brought the gospel with them. And to the towns and villages and places they went, they shared the good news of Jesus and the good news spread. So it did have its benefits, but it also had some challenges, Because these new followers of Jesus were forced away from the community and the leaders that they had come to know. The community and the leaders that they were forming this new faith in. Understanding all that Jesus said and taught and what he meant and how it looks in their lives. They were now forced out of those environments. And now they were forced to try to figure out what does it mean to follow Jesus in this new context? What does it mean to follow Jesus when I'm kind of on the run? What does it mean to follow Jesus amidst pressure and persecution? What does it mean to follow Jesus when I'm away from that center of gravity, that community that I had begun to form back in Jerusalem? And so James, he's their pastor. He loves them and no doubt would have held a deep sense of responsibility for them. Though they were scattered, they were still in his heart. And so he writes them this letter. But what is he writing about? If James, the brother of Jesus, he's writing to the 12 tribes scattered across the nations. What does he write them, to them about? We can assume that certain reports had made their way back to James about what these followers of Jesus were experiencing. He would have had reports returned about how they were behaving in certain interactions. We think he would have heard reports about persecution and trials that they were facing. He would have heard detailed accounts of the pressure that they were under. He would have heard of the oppression that they were facing from ungodly, wealthy people in these nations. He also would have heard that some of them had slipped into superficial religion. The faith that was once alive in them had just become a checklist of things that they did, but it didn't actually impact their heart. He would have heard of discrimination among the believers that would have revealed a deficit of love in their heart. He would have heard reports that there was bitterness in their speech and in their attitude. And all of these things James addresses in his letter to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. 
Now, the letter of James reads different than some of the other New Testament letters. If you read most of Paul's letter, they're addressed, letters, they're addressed to a specific church in a specific city at a specific time. So he's talking about very detailed things. He says, hey, talk to that person. Tell them this. That person, get them out of there for a while. Bring them back in. You know, get away from that stuff. Like he's just dealing with very specific issues. But remember, James is writing to a scattered group of Christians. And so this letter is more like a compilation of the sage wisdom of James. The wisdom that's applicable to every community of Christ followers at any place, at any time. His goal in writing is not to teach new theological information, though there is theology in the book of James. His goal is not to teach you new things, but rather to get right into your face, right into your business, and challenge you to actually put into practice the theology you already know. Don't just let it be something you know about in your head, like put it into practice in your life. We see a couple of key influences in James's wisdom that he writes about. The first is just all the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, specifically the book of Proverbs. This is a key influence in what we see in a lot of the teaching and thoughts and quotes that, we, uh, that James writes in this letter. But the second key influence is the teaching of his brother Jesus about the kingdom of God, specifically the Sermon on the Mount teaching. It's somewhere around 14 times in this short letter we see James refer to Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Isn't that just a beautiful picture? Think back, the skeptic James, he gets saved. He starts leading his brother's church. He's, he's shepherding these people. They're scattered, and now he's writing this wisdom down that's anchored in the history of his people, but also the reflections on his brother's teaching about the kingdom of God. And he says, let me show you how to live in wisdom. Let me show you how to live the right way. He would have grown up with these ideas of Proverbs and hearing his brother teach, and now his wisdom sounds like them. This is what came out of his heart. And it is likely that the book of James is one of the first New Testament documents that was written. One of the first existing Christian writings of any kind. Meaning, as we dive into this letter over the next eight weeks, we're diving into our roots as followers of Jesus. This is where it started. So what are some of the things that we can expect to see as we move through this? You know, a lot of people actually have had trouble with the book of James because they see his emphasis on faith and works, which seems to contradict some of Paul's writing about grace apart from works. In fact, I think it was even Martin Luther, and he, he tried to have James removed from the New Testament. He's like, can't deal with that. Get rid of it. It doesn't make sense to me. But I think for James, this tension that some of us feel is actually no tension at all. Because he's not undermining the writings of Paul or removing the role of grace in our life. He's simply emphasizing what should be the result of our faith, which is right living. Think of James like a counterbalance to Paul. Paul's saying, it's, it's all grace. And James is saying, yep, you got that. Now live it out. Now let your life show it. Now put it into action in your life. For James, it makes no sense, as you read this letter, it makes no sense at all for our faith to be something we only talk about. He says, how does that make any sense to just talk about our faith or just think about our faith? True faith will always be evidenced by the way that we live, the fruit of our life. 
right belief about Jesus, James would say, always leads to right behavior in the Christian. It's not enough, James would say, just to believe the right things, to score well on a test about like, who does Jesus say that he is? What are the commands of Jesus? That's one thing, but show me in your life. That's the emphasis of this letter. James wants his readers to live in the true wisdom that's defined by Jesus, which is not only defined by what we know, but far more by what we do. This is real wisdom. We often mistake wisdom for being able to say good things, but James is saying real wisdom, it's in the way that you live. And true wisdom and true faith can be seen in the way that we live, primarily through the way that we love God and love our neighbor. You see that theme come out over and over and over again in the letter that James writes. Love God and let your love for God show your love for neighbor. He deals with discrimination. He deals with favoritism. He deals with finances. He deals with bitterness and how we deal with temptation. All of these types of things. Love God and love your neighbor. The Bible Knowledge Commentary has a quote. It says this, right here, speaking of this letter, is a right stirring epistle designed to exhort and encourage, to challenge and convict, to rebuke and revive, to describe practical holiness and drive believers toward the goal of a faith that works. And so we call this series Be Better. It's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek. Because our goal here is not to talk about things and then send us out to try to work and be better in our own strength. That's not the point. We always need the grace of Jesus. We always need the strength of Jesus to add any of these things to our life. But the goal in this is to say, what does it look like for us to add our effort to God's grace, to God's strength in our life? Because following Jesus and being transformed is not a passive event. It requires our participation. It requires our obedience in following him. And the point is that we don't want to settle for a faith that's in word only. I think we have a lot of Christians that can say all the right things, but there's no fruit or evidence in their life or not enough fruit or evidence in their life. Perhaps I'd put my hand up first to admit that that's true of me at times. And so we don't want a faith that's evidenced only in what we say. We want a faith that's evidenced in what we do. Because faith that is only word and not deed is weak and it will not stand the test of time. And in the first few verses of James, he tells us how to have a strong faith. Let me ask you, how do you know if your faith is strong? Like the faith you have, whatever it might be, if you could somehow imagine quantifying it and holding it, how do you know if it's a strong faith? How do you know if your faith is built to last. How can you be sure? How can I be sure that the faith we have today will remain? Like anything else in our life, if our faith is to last, it must be examined. We have to examine our faith to see if it's strong. We have to see if it can stand weight and test. But how do we do that? How do we examine our faith? James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. 
Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James says it like this. Do you want to know for sure if your faith is strong? Do you want to examine to know if it's anchored and lasting? His faith is examined and tested through trials. It's examined and tested through pain. That's a really encouraging way to open the letter, isn't it? James said, here's who I am. Here's who you are. Trials. Let's get right into it. I'm like, no pleasantries, really. Like, like, like if it was me, this is how my personality, I would have warmed the audience up to the hard thing. I would have thrown in a joke, tried to, how you doing, everything good, soften the blow, say it, then say something really encouraging right after. You know, like the encouragement sandwich. That's how I probably would have done it. But not James. James readers like us knew what it meant to walk through trials in life. But James says to them, look, trials are inevitable, but I want you to take a certain kind of perspective when you walk through these trials. Because if we can maintain the right perspective and if we can maintain the right posture through trials, they will serve to reveal and strengthen our faith. And so for the last few minutes that we have, I want to just talk about three things from these verses. I want to talk about our attitude in trial, the advantages of trials, and the assurance of well-endured trials. James starts by addressing our attitudes in trial. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. That's kind of surprising advice, isn't it? You face trials, be pumped about it. Have, like, he doesn't even just say, have some joy. He says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. I think the first readers would have been surprised by it as well. Like James, sorry, what? Was that a typo? Did something on the scroll smudge? Like, did we miss something? Because this, pure joy, is not my natural attitude in the middle of trials. What's your attitude in trials? Think about the last time you were in the middle of a trying season. What was your attitude toward life? What was your attitude toward God and others in that season? Well, this is stupid. This is not my plan. This is the worst. It's like my kids when I don't get to play Fortnite, like meltdown. I mean, some of us still are like kids that don't get to play Fortnite. Like I'm sure if we're honest and we had time to, to think a bit longer, we can all think of times where life was difficult and our attitude did not resemble pure joy. Like no one likes trials. Yes, good job. No one, no one likes trials. In fact, look, what do we do? We try to do everything in our power to avoid ever experiencing trials. We go to great lengths in our culture, not just to avoid trials, but also avoid the inconvenience that might feel like a trial. Don't get in my space. I don't want to, like, like that, that drive through is too long. I'm going to drive seven blocks to the next one. I don't want to be inconvenienced. These are trials. This is so hard. God. Why have you forsaken me? Like, 
And when life doesn't go the way we hoped, when life doesn't go the way we planned, we take up these negative attitudes. Now, if that's you, you're not bad, you're just a human. I'm making light of trials, but I know in this room they represent, like, there's very real trials. Don't, please don't take my joking as being insensitive to those things. I just want to bring, like, but if you don't always have the right attitude, or if you don't have an attitude of joy, you're just a human being. That's pretty normal. But James is reminding followers of Jesus that there is another way to walk through trials. Remember who he's writing to. These people were facing very real trials. It was like an everyday experience, constant. And he says, despite the fact that many were experiencing persecution and discrimination and injustice, it was possible, according to James, to view their trial through the attitude of joy. But what does that mean to consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds? Let me start with what it does not mean. It doesn't mean that we put on fake smiles and deny our emotions when we experience trials. James is not telling you to be fake. I remember I was in this church. I, I did a discipleship program, and it was, it was a great church, but it was very like, um, called word, word faith, where it was like really big on the things that we say. So it would like, I remember like someone would walk in, and like they looked like they were on death's doorstep, like they were sick. And you'd say, you feeling all right? And usually the answer was something like, oh, healed, blessed, thank God, praise God, feeling great. <laughs> I'm like, you go be blessed over there because you're sick, bro. Like that is not, I mean, sometimes even as followers of Jesus, we get these weird things where it's like, we just have to, we feel like we need to pretend. James is not saying you need to pretend. That's not what it means to consider it pure joy. Denying your emotions and denying reality is a very bad strategy to use in the midst of trials. Considering it pure joy does not mean that we have to like trials. The joy James is talking about here is not the same as general happiness. So when he says consider it pure joy, it's not like, yes! Tires flat, bank accounts empty, in crushing debt, my dog died, praise God. <laughs> it's not what he's asking of you. No one likes trials, and that's okay. It does not mean that we should go looking for trials. Look, sometimes we find ourselves in trials because we're stupid and make bad decisions. Don't point to anybody. But listen, even if you're not stupid and make good decisions, life will bring enough trials your way. You don't have to go looking for more. But to consider our trials as pure joy means to choose our mindset during trials. He says, brothers and sisters, trials are inevitable. We can't get away from them. But when you experience them, I want you to take on a different mindset. I want you to consider these pure joy. Again, joy is not this outward happiness. Think about it like this. Pure joy is a settled contentment in every situation. Or in other words, it's a deep, thankful trust in God despite the circumstance that you're in. Consider it pure joy. Live with a settled contentment. God is still on the throne. God is still near. God has not taken his eyes off of me. 
It's a thankful trust in God. God, you're still near. Your love is still for me. You're working out good things for me in the midst of all of this. Most people, I consider it pure joy when I escape the trial. But James says, consider it pure joy in the midst of it, before it's over. So now the question is how? How do you do that? How does someone have genuine, a genuine attitude of joy when life sucks? We can face trials with joy when we recognize the rich and lasting advantages that come from these trials and testings. He says this in verse 3. He says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James says, this is, I'm not going to tell you something you don't know. He says, you know what I'm about to tell you. You've experienced this before. And I would wager that all of us in this room have experienced this truth before. He says, you know that trials are a test of your faith. Remember the question we asked a minute ago, how do we know if our faith is strong? We don't know unless it's tested. It's impossible to know how far you've come. It's impossible to know how strong your faith is unless it's put to the test. Are there any runners in the room? Any runners? A few? I don't know why. Why? What? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I've dabbled in running back in the day. I once ran 15 kilometers. That was my most ever. Oh, guys. 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 How do you know if you're progressing as a runner? You sit on the couch and say, oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure I shaved 30 seconds off my kilometer. You don't know if you're progressing unless you test yourself, unless you put yourself through the paces. You try to run further. You try to run faster. But you'll never know unless you're tested. Trials are what puts our faith to the test. I wish this were not the case. Like I wish we could just take a faith, like, multiple choice exam. <laughs> just check off all these things. It spits out a report and says, here's your faith. You got C plus faith. Oh, all right. Yeah. <laughs> but faith, <laughs> what is it? The D's get degrees. Come on. Like. <laughs> faith, though, is tested through trial. The emphasis on this word testing is this. It's testing that leads to approval or proving the worth of something. The picture might be like the refining process of metal or gold. It's put through the test. It's put through the fire so that all that is valuable is revealed and is identified. And it's only through this process of testing that we discover what our faith is actually made of. It's one thing that's like, yeah, I come and sit in these seats every day and I sing some songs and I you know, go through the motions, but what happens when you go through trial? James says that the testing of our faith produces perseverance in us. The goal of following Jesus is not that we start, but that we finish. The Apostle Paul did not say, I started my race. But he said, I've finished my race. 
man, I just think we need to start thinking about the end of our race now. Because a lot of people start and we get distracted. We get off course. If we are going to finish our race, it'd be more than a flash in the pan. We need to learn perseverance. And the only way to learn perseverance is through testing. And testing is by trial. But perseverance has work to do. And it's only accomplished through perseverance, through persistence. If perseverance is to finish its work, then our faith must not falter in the midst of trials. That does not mean that we must have perfect faith in the midst of trials, but that we cannot quit in the midst of them. I've been a pastor long enough to have seen many people walk away from their faith when life gets hard. And it's not that those trials are illegitimate. It's not that they should have just figured it out. It's hard. Life is hard and pain and trials bring up a lot of questions and doubts and all of those things. But to those who persevere, not only do they keep their faith, they build it. If perseverance is able to finish its work, it produces something of great value in us. It says we will be mature and complete and lacking nothing. The word mature means perfect or finished. The word complete means whole. And the picture is this. If perseverance is able to finish its work, that means that this faith thing is not a sprint. It is a long haul. It is year over year, decade over decade. It's the big picture in play. Perseverance must have time to finish its work. If it is given that time, it will develop a thoroughly mature Christian who lacks nothing in God. The goal of being mature and complete and lacking nothing is something as we follow Jesus, we move towards it all of our life. Yet we don't fully attain it in this life. We attain it in life to come. But the promise is that we can bear this kind of fruit now in our life. That we can grow in maturity and wholeness now in our life if we commit to the process of testing and examination. So why are we encouraged to consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds? It's so that we don't miss the advantages that come through trials that are inevitable. We can choose a different attitude in trial. But trials always produce something in us. No matter what attitude we choose, it's going to produce something in us. Trials are not neutral. So we can walk through trials and testing like victims, and it'll produce resentment and bitterness and indifference in us. Or we can walk through trials with an attitude of joy so that they might produce perseverance. And that perseverance might produce mature, maturity and wholeness in God. Worship team, the rest of you can join us as we prepare to close. Here's the last thought. The assurance of well-endured trials. Skip down to verse 12. 
James writes this. He says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. The one who does persevere under trial. The one whose faith does stand the tests that do come. That person will receive the crown that God promised in Jesus. The crown of life. I just don't think there's any way to endure trials of life with joy without an eye to the promise that is to come in Jesus. What is there in this world that can cause us to endure and maintain joy in our heart? There's not enough money. There's not enough fame. There's not a big enough house. There's not enough glory to satisfy that. But if we can keep an eye to the promise that is to come in Jesus, the crown of life, What does Jesus say at the end? He says, to to long to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. The crown, like, if we can keep our eye on that, then we can walk through trials with joy because we know what they produce in us. How do you know if your faith is strong? How do you know if your faith will last? You have to let it be examined. I'm not asking you if you're like, oh, life is good right now. I'm not asking you to go find yourself a trial. But one will come. But pay attention to how you walk through the next one. Examine your heart. Where's my joy? Am I seeing what God is doing? But maybe you're right in the middle of a trial today. Be encouraged. Your faith is being tested so that what is true, what is lasting, and what is valuable can be revealed. Don't run and hide from the trial. Find Jesus in the midst of it. Because he's there consider it all joy and don't give up where's our hope in trials where's our hope Jesus says this in this life you will have trouble but take heart I've overcome the world our hope is that that anything that we face, that every trial we walk through in life, Jesus is overcome. And he's with us. And he says, take heart. It's not going to crush you. I'm with you. I'm working through this. It's not for nothing. I've overcome the world. Can we stand? Jesus, teach us, I pray, to have joy in trials. 
for those who are in the midst of trials right now. I ask that you give great endurance and perseverance and strength that is not their own. But I ask that we let the trial do its work and produce a lasting faith in us. Let it be said of us that we were those who had eyes set on eternity and had hearts set on the crown of life. And so we did not give up and we did not sway and we did not waver in the midst of trials. We trusted God and we considered it pure joy. We hope you enjoyed this message. We would love you to subscribe to our weekly podcast. Other ways you can connect with Avant Life is through YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Or check out our website at avantlifechurch.com.